We're beginning a, a series this morning uh, that we'll do three Sundays now in January and then two Sundays in February, looking at little letters in the New Testament that we often overlook. Uh, this morning is, is taking a, a little look at, at Titus. And we'll look at Philemon next week and then 2 John the week after that. And then in February, we'll look at 3 John and Jude. These quite often are, are books that, that we skip over. We don't, we don't really spend much time with them, but they are rich. And they are written to the first churches in, in, in Christianity. They are, they are Paul and, and some of the other apostles and leaders writing letters to these early churches saying, this is how you're supposed to live because of Jesus Christ. And so that framework will shape our conversation as we begin the new year here together. I want to put a quote in front of us as we begin and, and as we engage this text today. It's from Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin uh, was a missionary in the Anglican Church, spent much of his life in India, and then he came back towards the end and, and spent a lot of time in England and working with churches throughout North America and throughout Europe. And one of the things he said frequently and, and wrote about was, was that the only hermeneutic of the gospel, and I'll explain that word hermeneutic in a minute, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a community of men and women who believe it and live it. In other words, it, it's the way we, we live together that makes the gospel make sense to people. Hermeneutic is a, a fancy technical term for the way we interpret things or the way we go about interpreting something. And so part of what Newbegin was saying is if we want to know what the gospel really means, we need a community of people who live it out. Not just, not just say they believe it, but along with their profession that, that it shows up in the way they live life together. The problem, though, is too many of us as Christians have really the same attitudes and behaviors as the rest of the world. It makes it difficult for people outside of us to believe the gospel as being true. I'll give an example from my own life. Uh, there was a time where I walked away from the church completely. I was raised in a Christian family, uh, went to Christian schools, and, and somewhere around grade 6 and grade 7, I decided I really didn't believe it. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And when people would start pushing me on it and saying, why, 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 and, and try to argue with me and persuade me, I would simply point to the church softball team. I would say, you know what? Some of those guys go get drunk every Tuesday night after softball. They say they believe and they get up and they lead church on Sunday morning, but on Tuesday night, they're drunk after a game. And I've seen how they treat the players on the other teams. By the age of 13 or 14, I was pretty convinced that because of their hypocrisy, I didn't have to believe the gospel. Paul's writing to Titus in a pretty similar situation. It's a community on the island of Crete, and most of what Paul's doing here is, is telling the Cretan Christians how to live with godly character 
and with actions towards those outside of the church. If you read the letter as a whole, there, there's instructions about what type of leaders should be in the church. And it refers to people who, who have godly character, who treat their spouses and, and kids well, who live in such a way that they're not upset easily or easily angered, but that they have a gentleness to their spirit. It goes on in multiple other places to come back to those same thing, themes of this posture towards other people and the attitude and behavior they have towards others around them. The problem was the Cretan Christians and the people of Crete had a different reputation, a very different attitude, and it comes up in chapter 1. Paul is writing the, to Titus, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. How would you like that for your reputation? This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Now, I want to note, note here that the they, re, rebuke them, sorry, the them, has to do with people who are in the church. It's not saying go around to the city as a whole and the island of Crete as a whole and find anybody you can and rebuke them for their attitude and behavior. Paul's talking to Titus about people who are in the church. And he's saying they've got such an attitude and behavior, they're just like the rest of the world around them. There's no difference. They're living and behaving in such a way that, that their attitude hasn't changed at all. Their behaviors haven't changed at all. You can say the same thing about the people inside the church as you can about the people outside of the church. It's a pretty harsh word, isn't it? I mean, Paul, who, who constantly is encouraging people and giving thanks for people and, and for the churches here is saying, folks, you're just like everybody else, and it's wrong. In fact, Titus, you've got to rebuke them. You've got to get in their face and tell them the way they're living doesn't line up with the gospel. It's not a comfortable word, is it? sometimes come back to the words gruff and grumpy. Do you know anybody who's gruff or grumpy? Come on, we just went through the holidays. I'm sure some of you have family members who are gruff and grumpy, right? I mean, it's that sense of they're not pleasant people to be around. There's something about the way they carry themselves and the way they interact. You're like, okay, for a day we can smile with each other, but after that, that's about it. <laughs> I think too often we as Christians have gained that same type of reputation with the way we engage with each other and the world around us. i just highlight briefly three ways. I remember talking with a businessman. He was kind of high up in the sales and marketing department of a, a global firm. And we were having lunch together and he was talking about how it was difficult for him to be a Christian in his line of work. He said the expectation is for me to close a deal, to close a sale, that I have to take people out, I have to show them a good time, which usually means getting them drunk and allowing them the opportunity to have sex with somebody else. That's how I close my deals. But I read the gospel and I know that's not right. 
and he was grappling with how to live faithfully in a business world that the expectations were such that you're going to party and, and you're going to enable other people to party just to close the sale. It's like, if I lose this job, how am I going to provide for my family? And it was a real, honest grappling with him. How do I live in the business world that has certain expectations about how I'm going to act and what I'm going to give my clients, and how do I keep my Christian faith? And how do I bring these two worlds together? And he said, quite frankly, too often I choose to go with the business world because I like the money at the end of the day. It was a grappling for him. How do we live in the world with the world's expectations and yet maintain our Christian identity? Politics. I know some of us are getting tired of the politics, especially those south of the border. Politics. I cannot tell you the number of times I have seen a tweet or a Facebook post come across my feeds over the last six months from both sides that denigrate and tear down the leader of the opposite party. How many times I have seen fake news, we're familiar with that term now in our culture, fake news articles being passed around by Christians as if they are gospel truth about the character of the opposing party's leader. We live in a world that is constantly watching us and the way we interact on social media with fake news and especially about politicians we don't agree with or we don't like says a lot about the gospel. The way we as Christians carry ourselves in that space and the way we talk about party leaders in other, other parties, other political parties, says a lot about the gospel. Native peoples and Muslims. I spent a lot of time in the States before we moved here uh, working on anti-racism groups. I was involved in, in leading some, went through several trainings, involved in training people around anti-racism in institutions that looked at anti-racism. And one of the refrains that I heard when I moved here to Canada was, we don't deal with racism. We don't have racism. That's a black-white issue down in the States. And it was a very convenient kind of stiff-arm conversation until I start talking to people about Caledonia and just outside of Caledonia in Hagersville. The way we here in Canada have had a relationship or a broken relationship with native peoples and how that has been perpetuated by people within the church says a lot about the gospel. And even though we might not talk about it a lot, the fact that very few of us engage with people from native communities, myself included, does something to diminish the gospel. I've heard it more frequently as of late around immigration. And the phrase often comes with those Muslims or those Arabs and then something that's pretty derogatory. They're taking our jobs. They're getting free handouts from the government. That's our tax money. 
those type of statements that are then followed by things that characterize all Muslims and all Arabs in a certain light, in a certain way. It demeans them and tears them down, the, the way we speak and the way we treat them. It says a lot about our gospel. We might not be qualified and fit under uh, Paul's description of the Cretans of being liars and drunkards and, and gluttons. But we certainly have our own issues for the way that our lives and the way we carry ourselves in our engagement with the broader world diminishes the gospel. James, James gets real pointed with this. I don't know how many of you have read the letter that uh, James wrote to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. But, but he says this in, in chapter 3, and I'm, I'm going to read it, and then I'll highlight just one verse out of it. Get there a sec. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures have been tamed and have, have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Well, I put in front of us, though, that verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Our gospel witness, what we're called to live out in the world, and the way we're called to engage others in the world, has everything to do with the way we speak about other people. It's a struggle, isn't it? a struggle. I think one of the beautiful things in this passage in Titus is that he actually acknowledges that. Verse 3 says, we used to live like that. That was our way of life. We used to be the type of people who were ornery, gruff, and grumpy. Okay, he doesn't use those words, but that's the idea there. That's how we used to live. And if we were left on our own, 
we would never be anything different than that. We would be self-centered and, and lashing out at others just to protect ourselves and make our way in the world. We would do whatever we had to do just to survive if we were left on our own. But the good news of the gospel is that we're not left on our own. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. In the Greek, this is actually all one sentence. It's Paul kind of spilling over top of himself. It's a nightmare to diagram. Does anyone diagram sentences anymore? Yeah, a few people. <laughs> it, it is a nightmare to diagram and figure out how everything fits together. But the NIV has actually done a pretty good job here of, of keeping the flow of it. It's saying it's not what we've done. It's not our righteousness because we couldn't be righteous on our own. We're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to continue to sin. We're going to continue to do wrong. But, because of what God has done, in Jesus Christ, he saved us. Not because, we needed, not because we were worthy, but because of who he is. He saved us, and, and he's restoring us, not just by saying, I've saved you for eternity, but I'm making you new now through the Holy Spirit. I'm doing a work in you to change you, to transform you, if you will. And the way he's transforming us is to remake us in Christ and through the Spirit so that we have God's character. There's actually four pieces in this text, and I think we can see them a little better on here. I highlighted them in green. That screen washes out and disappears right now. So, but when the kindness, so kindness and love, mercy and generosity. I was reading several commentaries this week and it struck me that they all came back to this. That there are four character pieces of God talked about in this passage, rooted in his character. And it's as if Paul is saying, listen, this is who God is. The God who saved you, this is his character. And you are called to live this way. You're called, you're saved in order to have the same character that God has. Philippians 2 actually challenges us at one point and says, says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had. It's calling us to have not just this sense of we're saved once and all for eternity, but that we are being transformed by Christ's Spirit here and now so that we begin to resemble Christ in the way we interact with each other and the world around us. So as we are being remade in God's image, we're being called to, in our relationships, in our postures, in our business dealings, in our internet use, in the way we talk about other peoples who are different than us, to continually display kindness, love, mercy, and generosity but not because we can do it on our own, but as a response to what God has already done for us and continues to do in us because of, of Christ and the Spirit. 
The start of, of, chap, of verse 8 starts off this way. This is a trustworthy saying. That whole long sentence that we just read is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things, that we're saved by God's grace, that it's God at work in us through the Holy Spirit, that God's character is filled with kindness and love and mercy and generosity. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. We couldn't do what is good before on our own. We, we couldn't do it. We kept falling short. But because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, because of what he has given us, we're now able to live a new way of life that is doing good, that is marked by doing good works. That phrase, good works, actually shows up in Titus, I think it was six times. And all six is it's a call to a new way of life. Go and do good works. Be devoted to doing good works. Not as, not as something to earn your salvation, but because of the salvation God has given to you. When you think of something you're devoted to, what would you say? Anybody. What are you devoted to? Family, okay? Music, friendship, yep. What was that? Grandchildren. Any Maple Leaf fans here? You got to be devoted to be a Maple Leaf fan, right? <laughs> I keep hearing they're coming back, right? Yeah, next season, next season. <laughs> it's too early to say next season, isn't it? Yeah. Sense of devotion is you are committed to something no matter what or you're committed to somebody no matter what the consequences that come. And to be devoted to doing good works, not in order to earn salvation, but because of the salvation that's been given to us. We're devoting ourselves and saying, my life is going to look different and be shaped different and have different rhythms that other people can see just because of what God has done for me. Because God has saved us, I'm going to live differently. We're going to live differently. Salvation changes us. You know, the, another theme that popped up as I was reading the commentators, and it kind of surprised me, but it, it was pretty consistent. This passage, this being devoted to doing good works, several commentators compared it back to Jeremiah 29, 4-7. And Jeremiah is writing to a people who are captive in Babylon they have been dragged away out of their homeland. They're, they're in a, a place of, of captivity. And, and Jeremiah is saying to them, while you're there, love the city. Love the city of your captors. Love the city of your enemies. Love the city. Seek its prosperity. Seek its shalom. And in many ways, Paul is telling Titus the same thing to teach the people, instruct the people, equip the people to love the island of Crete, to love the Cretan people, to love them right where they're at. But to do so by doing good works, to having a renewed character, a different character among them. So what does that mean for us? We have this beautiful vision statement that really 
resonates with this passage. It's transformed by the gospel, our city and world renewed in Christ. We are transformed by the gospel, and as the gospel transforms us, we're called to live in such a way that our city and our world gets renewed in Christ Jesus. It's not something we do in order to earn our salvation, but it is something that we do because God has already saved us in Christ, because he has been generous and kind and merciful and loving toward us. You know how the end of Titus 3 verse 8 ends? Titus 3 8 ends with these things, all this that Paul's been talking about in this passage, are excellent and profitable for everyone. Everyone. You know, the vision statement isn't just for Justin. He's our council chair. You need to own the vision <laughs> statement, my friend. And you do. But it isn't just for him. It's not just for the elders. It's not just for Jan and those who are involved with the Cap Debt Center or those who come out on Monday nights to be involved with, with our friendship ministry. It's not just for our deacons who do benevolence work out in our community and find ways to assist other agencies and people uh, who are struggling in the community. Paul says to Titus, and the Spirit says to us, this calling to be transformed by the gospel and then live a life of renewal in the city and the world is for everyone. Every one of us, our kids, the grandparents and elderly among us, all of us are called into this mission, this vision of being transformed by the gospel in such a way that our lives lead to the renewal of our city and our world. So as we begin this new year, I'm going to put two questions in front of us. The first is this. How are our attitudes and conversations being transformed by the good news of Jesus. How are our attitudes and conversations being transformed by the good news of Jesus? It means online. It means in the hallways at school. It means when we talk about our teachers who give us unfair exams. It means about our bosses who give us extra assignments and, and seem to always jerk us around. It means the Muslim neighbor who moves in next door. We're down the street from us. How are our conversations and attitudes being transformed by the gospel of Jesus? And the second question I'd like us to keep in front of us as we enter this new year is this. In what tangible ways are we participating with Christ and the Holy Spirit in the renewal of our city and the world? In what tangible ways it's great to say, our city and world renewed in Christ, right? Everybody can get behind that. It's much more difficult to say, how are we actually going to do that? What's that going to look like on the ground? We've heard some brilliant testimonies in the last couple months of ways that people in this congregation are already stepping into that and participating with Christ and his people in renewing this city and world. I'm looking for and hoping for that, that we'll continue to hear more of those testimonies in the weeks and the months ahead. And they're not going to look all the same. But they will have all this in common. Because of what Christ has done in us and what the Spirit is doing in us, we are now living differently in the world. And the world is changing because of that. Let's pray.
we thank you for this incredible good news that we're not left to our own ends, Lord. That you have not left us to, to fend for ourselves or, or earn our righteousness and salvation because we know and you know we could never do that. Thank you for your incredible, almost unimaginable gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the lavish way that you have given us salvation so freely that you call us heirs, at giving us this gift, not that we earn it, but that you delight in giving it. And thank you for your spirit, who is at work, making us more and more like Christ. We pray this morning that you would transform our mouths and our hearts and our minds, the attitudes we have towards the people around us. Help us, Lord, to treat people with gentleness and kindness, to be loving and merciful the very way you have been towards us, that they too might experience your grace in Jesus Christ. And as you work in us, Lord, give us good works to do. Open our eyes so that we might do what you have set before us. Give us the encouragement we need to step forward in faith and, and to act with kindness and mercy, with love and generosity that this city, the city you've placed us in, might be renewed and made whole in Jesus Christ. This we pray. Amen. You invite us to stand and sing together, We Are Called.